This episode of Meeting in Middle America with Stephen Olakara is brought to you by UW-Milwaukee, Waggett, and Bridge and & Build. And now, here's your host, founder and CEO of the Millennial Action Project, Stephen Olakara. Welcome to Meeting in Middle America, our podcast highlighting leaders who are bringing people together in the Midwest. And uh, on this show today, we have a real treat. Uh, she is the executive director of BLOCK, which stands for Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, Angela Lang. She is an extraordinary uh, and integral leader to uh, our city and to so many of the important movements uh, uh, happening right now. Angela, thanks so much for taking some time out to join us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. So, so much to talk about. Um, first of all, for, for folks who are listening who are not familiar with Block, uh, just give us a quick rundown of, of what you're all about and, um, and your theory of change. Yeah, so Block is a year-round civic engagement organization. Uh, we launched in November of 2017. Really was a response to the 2016 election. We've seen, um, you know, turnout was down all across the state, but everyone really wanted to point the finger specifically at the Black community for not showing up to vote, um, which was really just infuriating that the bulk of the blame was being placed on our community, um, which we have some of the most disenfranchised folks and least engaged folks. And so, um, you know, it was it was very frustrating to hear that narrative that we were solely the reason the, the way the, um, the election went in 2016. And, you know, we really thought about what does it look like to have a year round organization that's doing really intensive leadership development and really intensive um, civic education and letting people know how to plug in, how to get involved, um, and having people really understand the agency that they have within themselves and we're not waiting for a candidate or an elected official. We live in the communities. Um, we're all part of the Black community here in Milwaukee, and we were going to take that, that challenge on ourselves. And so we knock a lot of doors. Um, we do both um, partisan and nonpartisan work. Um, so in the off-election cycles, we are able to continue to knock doors, engage around issues, really have people um, just understand how to how to get involved and also hold their leaders accountable. Um, but in busy election years, such as um, the one that we're in right now, we um, do make endorsements. We're going through our endorsement process now, um, and we will be advocating for the candidates that we think um, are, are going to be the best for our community and support our agenda. Um, but again, really having the direct contact with, um, with residents and voters and really expanding this idea of civic engagement. Civic engagement isn't just voting. Um, if we consider civic engagement as just voting, we're leaving out whole groups of people. We're leaving out undocumented folks. We're leaving out folks um, who are still on paper and haven't had their voting rights restored yet. Um, and we want to kind of reflip that, that message that you aren't just as valuable by your ability to vote. Um, there's other ways for you to be civically engaged. And there's ways that we can all educate our community together and having people understand the difference between a state senator and a U.S. senator. What exactly does the state Supreme Court do and why do we care? Um, and even educating people uh, around local city budget processes as well. So having that long-term engagement as a way to build neighborhood power um, and just to build long-term Black political power here in Milwaukee. That's incredible. And now you are born and raised in Milwaukee. And uh, I read in another interview, you said Milwaukee kind of inspires you and breaks your heart every day. 
And uh, folks who are tuning in will know that Milwaukee has been very much at the forefront of the protests uh, against the the murder of George Floyd. And uh, of course, I think one reason why people in Milwaukee have really gotten activated is because issues around uh, racial injustice and racial segregation have been ongoing for many years. So just talk about the last couple weeks as as the events have impacted your organization, but also you personally. Yeah, um, you know, I, people ask all the time is like, what is different about this moment? Uh, do I have hope for this moment? And, you know, I was in college when Trayvon Martin was murdered. That was like the first real, I think, shock to a lot of our system. Um, even though these things have been going on, they hadn't been um, mainstream in, in, in that way. And, you know, same with Mike Brown and even locally with Dontre Hamilton back in 2014. And I, I think what we're seeing and experiencing right now is that people are saying enough is enough. You know, you can only do, um, you know, the, you can, these murders can only happen for so long without people really um, challenging systems. I think it's, it's part of it is, is fatigue at some point, you know, constantly opening your social media um, you're, whether it's seeing the president's tweet about um, harming and threatening protesters, peaceful protesters, or it's scrolling down your timeline and seeing another video of another Black person being murdered at the hands of the police um, or even vigilantes, right? And I think all of that, um, you know, seeing the murders of um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and, and George Floyd, like all of that happened in such a short amount of time um, to the point where I think it's, it was kind of like a soda can that has been shaken up. And um, I don't think anyone is really surprised um, how people are reacting, how people are burning things down. I think that's a big metaphor for how people view this system right now. And I think we need to have these really bold and honest conversations. Um, and what I'm actually really encouraged by is people are having conversations about bold agendas and are really dreaming about a world that we want to be in. I think so many times we put ourselves in these boxes of like, well, we can't, you know, defund the police or we can't divest. This is what we've always done. There's been kind of like a certain standard that we've held. And even though we don't always agree with it, we kind of just dealt with it. Um, and I think people are really thinking about like, let's just metaphorically burn it down and start it over. Um, let's let's plan for a vision that we want to to dream about, and it shouldn't just be a dream. Let's actually work towards it. Um, so for us, we um, we always ask folks when we're knocking on doors, uh, what does it look like for the Black community to thrive? And a lot of uh, those answers really frame and and really recenter and refocus our our work and our priorities as an organization. Directly hearing responses from that. Um, and so one of the things that we did, we started working with the Liberate MKE campaign um, that launched last fall around divesting from the police department and putting those resources into our community so we can have healthy, thriving communities. Um, we started those discussions last fall. Um, I think people were really starting to pay attention to city budgets more than they had ever done before. And to see these conversations now happening in a mainstream way where some organizers um, were deemed as crazy a couple of years ago about divesting or defunding the police. And now it's a rallying cry. And so I think it, there's a, a real opportunity and there's um, a real opening to really um, start to enact the vision that we all want to see. And as an organization, when the protests first started happening, 
we had to really think about what is our role as an organization. Um, we haven't organized any of the protests, although we fully support them. And we wanted to make sure that we're honoring and lifting up um, the, the Black women um, and the trans folks and queer folks that are, are doing some of these protests. Um, and that our role is to support them. And it's also to be able to uplift demands and to lift, um, lift up our own platform. We do have um, good relationships with the governor's office. We do have um, a relationship with the mayor's office and a good relationship with the county executive. And we're able to kind of really think about what is that world? What are these demands and what are these policies that we really want to push for? Mm -hmm. You mentioned knocking on doors and asking residents what type of what sort of things will make our communities thrive uh, and how that frames your agenda. What have been some of the most uh, interesting and, and important things that you've heard as as you've uh, been hearing those uh, ideas? Yeah, it's been almost three years that we've been asking that question and we've heard probably everything that you can think of. We've heard a lot of um, micro level issues. Um, when people talk about thriving communities, sometimes people just wanna see a stop sign or a speed bump um, on their block, right? It may not necessarily be about thriving, um, but that also is a signal that people don't feel that their neighborhoods and their blocks are being invested in the way that maybe folks in Shorewood or Tosa um, are being invested in. And so it's like, let's get you that speed bump, but let's also like not like have to fight for such basic things. Uh, we've also heard bigger things like criminal justice reform or healthcare jobs, um, youth programs. We hear a lot about um, supporting our young people, uh, whether it's in the summer so that they have safe outlets um, to, to plug into that they can continue to, to flourish in, in, uh, while they're not in school. But we've heard um, a lot about mental health. We've heard a lot about lead in our water. So we've we've heard it all. We've heard a lot of economic issues, criminal justice, and I think youth programs tend to be the the biggest things that we hear on doors. Mm -hmm. And uh, you referenced earlier the need for an agenda, and and Block has an agenda. And as we think about making change in this moment, um, you know, Block obviously has been organizing for, for a few years now, and you've developed an agenda based on what you're hearing. And then all of a sudden, you know, the spotlight gets shined on, on the set of issues. So how do you, how do you, how do you process all of that? And what should we all be thinking about to kind of translate this moment into the sustainable change that Block has been working for uh, over the course of years. Yeah, um, it's always really interesting how we're all processing things in real time um, as, as members of the community and as, of, around issues that directly impact us and our identities. Um, so it's a little bit more personal. Um, it, it, it gets to you a little bit differently. It hits differently. Uh, I used to joke around and it's, you know, it, it's not one of those organizations where you're working on, on saving the birds or the baby seals, and then you go home and then you're like, I don't need to think about them until tomorrow. Um, all of these things, we don't organize because it's fun or it's the cute new trendy thing to do. We organize because these are our, our lives that we're talking about. Um, so we're, we're processing that in, in real time. We're also trying to figure out how to hold the space of, of organizing in community, building with others, um, amplifying others. And you know, when people you know talk about how can we, how can I help, how can I be supportive, we try to give people three different ways to to continue to to be involved and, and supportive. One, financial contributions um, is able to sustain the work, and that's not just um, you know for a block, but groups like Leaders Igniting Transformation, who is on the cusp 
of being able to um, get um, the Milwaukee Police Department out of our school system. They had just a, a really big rally last night, and I believe there's another vote tonight. Um, you know, other organizations, this work needs to be sustained. It's a year-round basis. Um, I think people get um, disappointed when they only see organizations just at certain times and then not again until something else major happens. And so being able to sustain, sustain the movement um, is, is really important. Um, two, we always like to get connected to other people, other, other organizations or individuals or press or creatives out there who want to help. Um, whether they're, they even live in Milwaukee or not, we're always looking to collaborate and amplify each other where possible because we really do think that there's strength in numbers, um, not just in Milwaukee, but all across the country, people are in organizers are having these conversations. And then lastly, um, we always tell people amplify and share the content from different organizations, whether it's us, whether it's LITS, whether it's Movement for Black Lives, making sure that we're all amplifying each other. Um, because I think uh, it, I wish we didn't have to live in a world where um, white folks didn't have to validate the experience of uh, communities of color, but that's the reality that we're in. And I think um, allies specifically being able to amplify our lived experience um, and to amplify that is also important. And it also leads to some of the tough conversations. You know, um, white folks really have to reckon with their racist uncle at Thanksgiving this year. Um, and, and being able to amplify people's lived experiences and, and the content that we're putting out on our social media, I think can also help in, in some of that as well too. Yeah, I, I think that aspect is one of the real transformations about this moment is uh, the degree to which um, I see my white friends uh, not shying away from the conversations as much, but really yeah. diving in and they might feel a little uncomfortable, uh, but they're still willing to, to, to lean in in many cases. And I think that tracks with the larger trend we're seeing with Black Lives Matter. Now, yeah. a majority of the American public uh, says that they support that cause. W what does that mean? Because that's a huge shift in just maybe three, four years uh, from being a kind of non-mainstream movement to now being, I was joking the other day, you know, when Mitt Romney you know, you know, says Black <laughs> Lives Matter, that's how you know yeah. you've crossed a certain threshold. But what what does that mean? Because that, that seems to be a big shift and potentially have a lot of, um, uh, will have a big impact on the debate. Yeah, I think it's been really fascinating um, to watch just the last couple of weeks and to see some of the, the data and the poll numbers, to hear people publicly call for defunding the police. Like I've been in spaces with organizers where there's butcher paper all around the room and we're trying to figure out how do we move this conversation um, in, in more of a mainstream way and it's, it's happening. And I, I think it kind of just goes back to the fact that people are really fed up. Um, you know, we've seen these things on social media for years but I think um, it's, it's bigger than, than George Floyd. Um, and, and I think a lot of folks know that, but I think this really was the catalyst and kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Um, and people are like, enough is enough. Um, and, and I think there's also a morally, um, a morally conscious thing about this as well. Um, like how many unarmed black people um, and trans folks need to be murdered before you stop saying, but after all lives matter, right? Or after black lives matter. Um, and, and I think there's a real reckoning that's happening. I think it's also um, people wanna be on the right side of history, right? People of color have been marching in the streets 
not just the last couple of weeks, but for generations and decades. Um, and I think we've reached a little bit of a critical mass at this point that it's like, you either run with it or you run from it at this point. Um, and, and I hate to kind of frame it in such like a um, heavy handed way, but when people have been murdered at the hands of police and, and the state has allowed it and there's been little to no accountability, at some point stuff's gonna get burned down, both literally and metaphorically speaking. Um, and I think people really wanna be on the right side of it. People are like, this is the moment. Um, but it's been really, really fascinating to watch just how quickly um, the dialogue has changed, um, how it's been more favorable, and, and how average people are, again, really, I think, thinking and challenging the, the boxes of status quo that we've put ourselves in for, for decades now. That's right. That's right. Now, I want to jump into a little bit of your own personal background. I'm always fascinated with what gets people you know, yeah. politically active and becoming political leaders. And you've been in political organizing for a number of years with various organizations. What would you say were some of those pivotal moments um, just in your formative years as a leader um, that ultimately led you um, leading this incredible organization? Yeah, I think there's there's two things that come to mind. One is deeply personal that I've started to talk with about a little bit more. Um, one is being raised by a single mom who was white and when I was in seventh grade was diagnosed with terminal cancer and she had to figure out how to support um, this black kid. Um, she already had to figure out how to do my hair <laughs> um, and, you know, raise this black child. But, you know, adding on that, that component in, in that layer of seeing that, you know, she didn't have health insurance. And so, um, you know, having all of that kind of manifest and seeing the struggles that she had to go through. I didn't quite have the language when I was in seventh grade about what racial justice is or economic justice and the intersection between race and gender um, and, and motherhood and, and all of that. Um, but also being able to see that like paid sick days and, and the fight for 15 weren't mainstream things in the early 2000s. And so she would go to chemotherapy like clockwork every Tuesday and would still be at work every Wednesday, acknowledging and knowing um, what chemo was doing to her body. Because we live in a society where you have to be productive in order to live. Um, and I think right now we're seeing the the, the cracks in capitalism and, and how that's playing out in this pandemic and, and everything else and the intersections of it. So I didn't really have that analysis. Um, I also grew up right across the street from Marquette High School, which is a private all boys school. And I would see, you know, my guy friends that lived literally right across the street or right next door to the school, they couldn't afford to go to the school that they lived right next door to. They were essentially shut out of that school. You'd see parents pick up and drop off their kids. And that was the only really time you saw a mass influx of white people was, you know, 730 in the morning and, and three o'clock when they're picking up their kids. And again, I was like, this doesn't seem right, but I just didn't have the language to really fully articulate why. And then um, later on, I was at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I was doing a lot of like nonpartisan voter registration. I knew my own political leanings, but was really into um, nonpartisan work. And Scott Walker was elected in 2010. And I remember, um, super Milwaukee reference, I remember sitting in pizza shuttle, um, watching <laughs> the election results come in, eating pizza as we do um, at pizza shuttle. Um, <laughs> and... I remember my friends saying, oh, this is bad. This is real bad. And 
Scott Walker was not a person I supported and voted for, but I was like, it's that can't be that bad. It'll be fine. Like it's not, you know, I think at that moment I was a little naive. Um, and there was a little bit of this Midwest nice where even if your candidate didn't win, you know, there was still some civility involved. You can still have a friendly debate and discussion and we weren't so hyper-polarized like we are now. Um, and then flash forward a couple months and everyone's protesting in the Capitol. There's, you know, mass protests. Um, I was one of those people that occupied the Capitol and slept on the Capitol floor, that cold, hard linoleum floor for a couple nights, um, standing out in the snow, listening to union leaders and, and rallies and doing some organizing back on campus. Um, so I, I kind of joke around and I tell people that um, that moment really solidified to me what organizing looked like and, and kind of what radicalized me and my views and what I thought was acceptable versus not. Um, and and I joke around and I say, I credit Scott Walker to um, really radicalizing me and um, kind of flipping on that, that switch a little bit more to, to organizing. So um, my mom and Scott Walker, I credit <laughs> um, both of them um, for, for really helping me see um, different perspectives and, and how I kind of view the world a little bit too right now. Yeah. One thing that reminds me of is when, when I was in high school, first discovering and I think I read a report or somewhere maybe it was in the journal Sentinel about the racial divide and racial segregation of greater Milwaukee and it's yeah. one of those realizations of you've you've kind of noticed it but then you didn't realize that oh this you're is why yeah, yeah you're kind of you you become a little numb to it or not numb but you, you've grown up in a certain environment and so you don't mm -hmm. know any different but then you see some of this information and you're like, oh, okay. So that's why things are sort of the way they are. Mm -hmm. And and that kind of gets to this whole kind of systemic issue. And there's so many issues that layer on top of this issue in terms of, you know, how the educational districts are drawn, the yeah. historical redlining that's been uh, going on and, and, and many other issues. And so, um, how do you, I, I, how do you kind of, um, you know, obviously a lot of these issues are in the block agenda, but mm -hmm. just when you're trying to kind of explain it to people when there's so many compounding issues, um, how, how do you, uh, how do you frame all of these interrelated issues that ultimately lead to the kind of the, the racial, uh, divides that we see in the community? Yeah, that's a good question. It always feels like there is always some sort of fight and always some sort of fire um, that's happening. And um, I have to remind myself about being proactive and not always having to respond to all the things, um, although it is incredibly important to respond. Also taking that time to vision and to think long-term, um, but it's incredibly difficult sometimes when there's always, like the world literally is on fire right now. Like 2020 has just been a dumpster fire of a year. Um, you know, even thinking literally about the wildfires in like Australia, like that seemed like such a long time ago, but 2020 has been full of fires, literally and metaphorically speaking. Um, and I think for me, the way I think about it is that um, white supremacy is really at the heart of, of all of it. Um, and it intersects with so many different issues. We can even take uh, criminal justice, for example. Um, Say someone, you know, goes through, did their time, is trying to be back in society, they still have to check the box to say that they were previously convicted of a felon or of, of a felony. So that limits their access to housing and, and jobs. And so if you can't really get a job and you can't really support yourself or your family, what does that lead to? Um, you know, so things like housing, 
uh, living wage jobs and, and all of that all kind of intersect as well. And then later on, on top of it, um, if you're on, on paper still or, or supervision, you can't even exercise your, your voice by having the ability to, to vote as well. And so I think there are so many times that due to white supremacy, and we can also add in um, you know, sexism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, we can layer in all of these things um, in, in how they all kind of manifest. And I kind of see all these things a little bit as like one big giant Venn diagram that kind of just overlap with each other. Um, if you don't have access to, to quality healthcare or, or quality mental health, um, that also can impact your opportunities to find a job or, or healthcare or other things. And so all of these things um, really intersect with each other. And there's like that small part in the middle where it feels like everything intersects and that's like the most chaotic place to be in. Um, but it's also really important to take folks that are in that middle that are you know touched and impacted by so many different issues um, and intersections of injustice in our society. And those are the folks that we should be listening to and amplifying and really um, having them at a seat at the table to really guide and frame what the solutions are. And, and, and I think using that as a way to kind of gut check all of our work as well, because if some of the most marginalized folks um, are not able to um, be seen with dignity and to live healthy, long, fulfilling, thriving lives, then none of us are free, right? Our, our liberations are tied to each other. And we do need to be uplifting, um, you know, specifically black trans women who have been murdered um, specifically in the last few weeks. We need to be lifting up um, indigenous missing women and girls um, that really is not being talked about um, as also like a, a epidemic or a pandemic um, the way other things are as well. So being able to protect our most vulnerable um, and, and not play oppression Olympics too, but understanding how um, all of our liberations and um, if we really wanna work towards equity and justice, all of that is tied together. Um, and even if you're an ally, if you are a cisgender, straight, able-bodied, white man, there, there's a way for you to also amplify some of the more marginalized folks as well. So I kind of just think of it as, um, I, I try to take it, you know, bites at a time, because <laughs> um, there's so much um, to tackle and to address, but really thinking about it at the, at the heart of it is this heteronormative, white, patriarchal, um, capitalistic, society that really is designed to only um, uplift and center cisgender folks, um, white men, able-bodied, um, more affluent folks. So I, you know, just trying to peel back the layers without mm -hmm. getting overwhelmed, but understanding that that's kind of at the heart of all of these policies and, and anti-blackness um, and trying to tackle that as well. Well, one issue related to all of those that's been on my mind haven't seen it too much in, in the media recently, but um, eager to get your take on it is the issue of reparations yeah. and how we should be approaching it. Um, I know there's a bill in Congress right now to, to look at studying uh, reparations in a thoughtful way. Um, but from your standpoint, Angela, um, in terms of not just the what, but really the how, um, how should we be looking at kind of a, a, a 21st century conceptualization of reparations um, for, for, for the black community? Yeah, I think the, the idea and the, and the topic of reparations is such a big one. Um, and again, like 
nothing is simple. <laughs> so there's a lot of layers and complexities behind it as well. I think a lot of people, um, even in the black community, can't come up with an agreement of what form reparations would look like. Um, I think there are some folks that are introduced to the idea for the first time and just think it's monetary. Um, in in that case, like insert Rihanna, <laughs> right? Like I, I guess absolutely. Um, but also reparations is also trying to um, level the playing field a little bit um, when it comes to the disparities of healthcare. Does that mean that Black folks will automatically always get healthcare for the next hundred years? Um, will Black folks be able to go to um, school for free for the next hundred years? Um, are there other different um, services that, that can be offered? Um, are, is there land? How are we able to build generational wealth um, and, and capital within our own community without also falling to the ills of capitalism that also inherently harms our community as well. So um, it's, I think really we need to assess. Um, I think it's, it's, it's hard to put a value on that amount of, of pain and trauma um, in our own communities. And it seems that the conversation of reparations has kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, when really I do think it's an integral part of this conversation even right now um, and, and something I think is, is missing and it shouldn't just be, oh, well, we've done all this harm. Let me go throw, you know, a couple million dollars toward a family whose family member was, was murdered and killed. That's not quite reparations. Um, but being able to have a broader discussion about how these systems and institutions have constantly failed and specifically held back the Black community, how are people making that right? Um, is it just an extra, you know, a couple thousand dollars? I don't think so. I want healthcare. I want universal childcare. I want everyone to have access to living wage jobs. I want everyone to, I want everything to be free, <laughs> right? And some people are not going to agree. And somebody probably will take this out of context and say, oh, Angela just wants, you know, free things for Black people. Um, but also at the same time, like we deserve it for the amount of institutional and structural um, white supremacy that has been um, imposed on our community and has hindered our growth and development as a community, we really need to assess um, how every institution can pay a form of reparations, um, every form, uh, every institution and, and system that has um, directly harmed our community, how are they being involved in, in paying reparations to our community mm -hmm. too? Yep, yep. And uh, the the kind of final piece of the the block agenda really speaks to democracy. And uh, mm -hmm. as as someone in the democracy space, I really enjoyed reading through some of those points. And and you spoke earlier about um, some of the the challenges to the voting system. And uh, it's important for people to vote, of course. But sometimes um, there are uh, systemic barriers to voting, and there are ways that the electoral process works that um, often favors incumbents, favors certain yeah. outcomes. And the, the block agenda speaks to a number of those like gerrymandering. Uh, I saw one that I was happy to see that I thought was just for the good government nerds, but it was a uh, instant runoff ranked choice voting um, and, and, and eager to hear. That was just, our nerdy political director. <laughs> oh, really? I love it. I love it. Yep. So just, you know, I guess you could speak generally to that piece, but also specifically on ranked choice voting. Um, why? Um, I guess, wh why did that make the cut into the agenda and, and why will that um, benefit the, the black community? Yeah, I think a, a lot of things specifically in the democracy portion is we're trying to figure out ways to really amplify and to center community of colors voices. And I think also there's some times where people feel that they're just choosing the lesser of two evils. And so thus will like sit out the election. 
And so really trying to reframe um, and really think about how are we making it one the most inclusive election um, and two people actually feel that they have a voice in a, in a, in a say. Um, and I think that people would feel that a little bit more in, in ranked choice voting. I think there's so many times that people kind of just um, show up and participate and, you know, hold their nose when they're voting. And, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I, I went to the ballot booth and I did whatever I could. Um, but again, that also was like very much like limiting, I think, communities of color's voices. Um, and to me, I think we need to be looking at, you know, not just like ranked choice voting, but really any system that allows us to have a really healthy and robust democracy. Um, I think, you know, we love to say, oh, democracy won, or, you know, we did this or we did that. And I'm like, we're leaving out whole groups of people um, on one hand to democracy. So are we really living in a healthy, robust democracy, first and foremost, if we keep making rules and making it harder for people to vote? And then also, um, if people don't feel um, connected because they're just like, I'm just gonna vote for whoever and I don't feel like my vote really actually matters. We hear that a lot too. Oh, why do I need to vote? It's, you know, there's just lesser of two evils. It's gonna be the same regardless. It doesn't matter how I vote. I think ranked choice voting allows for people to feel that they're making a little bit more of an impact um, and they're, they're able to have a stronger voice than um, the current structures and, and whatnot that we have in place. And so we also need to think about voter suppression as not just tactics of limiting same-day voter registration, limiting um, early vote locations. Absolutely, those are policies about voter suppression tactics. But we also need to think about how we're um, getting people in, enthused and engaged to be a part of the civic engagement process. And if you don't feel that your voice matters, or if you voted for the same people time and time again, but you don't see a change in your district, um, that's also voter suppression because you're you're going to opt out of the political system as well. So I think all of the things and a lot of our thinking around um, having the, the democracy portion specifically in the block agenda is trying to find ways where people can can harness their power and to actually feel that they're being heard, um, not just through voting, but through other avenues of holding their um, elected officials accountable to. That's right. Now to just end on a positive note, uh, as you look ahead to the future of Milwaukee, what's something that makes you hopeful about the uh, the future of, of the city and the future of the state? Any kind of trend, any kind of solution, any kind of um, mobilization um, that you see happening or coming that gets you really fired up about the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited by seeing... Um, new people kind of just like really just step up and, and step into their own power. Um, to watch people step into their own power in real time is a beautiful thing to watch. And um, I see that every day at Block and, and having people really find their voice. And we're seeing more and more people step into that, which is um, really exciting. It's, it's an exciting to see um, having a, a Black county executive, a Black uh, chairwoman for the county board and a Black man um, as president of the, the Common Council, um, all of that is really important. And um, seeing people kind of step up in, in, in those ways is incredibly important. But seeing new organizers, seeing new activists, seeing young people, I like to think I'm young and I'm 30, but seeing younger people really start to, to take off um, organizing is, is so inspiring to see. 
Um, and, you know, some of the, the organizers have been organizing since they've been in high school. And although I wish that they would have a normal childhood and wouldn't have to organize and, and fight for their own rights, I'm so excited to see just like how badass they're going to be when they're my age. Um, so I'm, I'm really encouraged by young people, um, youth of color specifically, and, and the people that are really filling these roles and, and stepping up and, and really pushing back and challenging and kind of not, you know, giving a care in the world about what that means. Like they're bold. <laughs> um, and I think it's just really beautiful to witness. And um, there's really no going back from this moment. You know, everyone said, oh, you know, the, the world will never be the, the same um, post COVID. The world will never be the same after these protests and these uprisings. You can't unsee, you can't unlearn um, these conversations that are happening. And so, um, you know, part of me also feels that we're at this point where we're so low, there's only, <laughs> only place to go is up at this point. Um, the pendulum's got to swing back at some point. It can only go, you know, so far back before it swings. And so um, this may be a really, really dark time now, but I'm really hopeful for um, the work that'll happen in the future and, and these really bold demands and, and really just seeing young people step into their power has been great. Yeah, I share that optimism, seeing so many new people, young people get activated. And uh, David, David Crowley is a friend of mine to see, you know, someone come from yeah. one of, if not the most incarcerated zip codes in the country to now be the county executive of the city of Milwaukee mm -hmm. or the county of Milwaukee um, is extraordinary. And it shows that things uh, really can change. Uh, change yeah. is possible. So, um, Angela, thank you for taking some time out of your really Thank busy you. schedule to come on the show. And uh, thanks for your leadership in the city. Um, you. Hope you and your loved ones continue to stay safe in this pandemic um, and look you forward too. to uh, having you on again soon. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. You've been listening to Meeting in Middle America with Stephen Olicara, sponsored by UW-Milwaukee, Waggett, and Bridgetville. This has been a WISPolitics.com, WISBusiness.com podcast production.